Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. For this year's Remembrance Day special, I thought we'd do something a little different, and I found the perfect book. When we think of war in Canada, particularly around this day, I'd wager that there are two or three images that light up our imagination. The first is the poppy. The second might be the local cenotaph, or perhaps the magnificent ones in Ottawa and at Vimy in France. We might think of the poor chaps stuck in the mud of Belgium and northern France, or of the brave soldiers who attacked the beaches of Normandy 77 years ago. But there's another aspect to war, and it is what happens when the guns go silent. That's when the military has to assume some command of the civilian population that actually lives in and around the battlefield. My guest to talk about all this is David A. Boris, a fellow podcaster. He's the host of Cool Canadian History and a sessional lecturer in the History Department at the University of British Columbia. His book is Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwestern Europe, and it's published by McGill-Queens University Press. We reached him at his office in Vancouver. David, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. Good to be here. David, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on June 8th, 1944, two days after the landings in Normandy? So on June 8th, uh, 1944, the first, uh, the first two civil affairs officers arrived on the shores of Normandy for First Canadian Army Civil Affairs. So D plus two, we have the first civil affairs officers arriving in Northwest Europe. And what do they do? What's their task? What's their first move? Well, their first move is varied. Uh, their first move depends on every village and, and region that they go into. But generally speaking, their first move is to ensure that military operations can be carried out without being impeded upon by civilian populations. So that's a huge task. That's a big, vague statement. And I recognize that. And so their job within that statement is to do whatever it takes to make sure that the civilian populations do not interfere with the military operations that are being conducted. So it's looking after what a civilian population would be worried about, things like getting food, things like uh, staying protected, finding shelter. Uh, a lot of these civilians are fleeing. Uh, does, does this include uh, taking care of refugees? Yeah, especially in the case of uh, France. Uh, well, well, in every country they enter into, there's always a, a major concern with 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 refugees because part of the and part of the problem with Normandy, especially, is that we're talking about a very small area with very intense fighting, and so you're talking about you know these fairly significantly large urban you know civilian populations, and you have combat everywhere, and so the job of civil affairs when they're in France is to make sure that these civilians are number number one out of the way, but number two you know, safe in, in some capacity. So this is something like moving them from the battlefield, uh, transporting them into the rear, getting them away from the front lines as quickly as possible while combat is erupting all around them. So moving these people out of there. And then after that point, it's a, like you mentioned, it's about taking care of their sort of basic needs, food, medicine, shelter. You know, are they healthy? Are, are they hungry? Do they need to eat? Things like that. Because the, the big thing is for, for civil affairs and for the larger allied you know, army that that was invading or, or, or liberating Northwest Europe. The problem is, if if you have people who are hungry and you have people that are sick, that might end up impeding military operations because those people might be a problem. They might be a problem, a broader problem. They might spread disease or they might, you know, uh, cause problems in the rear areas and stuff. So this is a this is a major major task. So let's talk about these people. Your book introduced me. 
uh, as a reader to a particular part of the Canadian Army in the Second World War that I wasn't aware of, and it's the First Canadian Army Civil Affairs Section. The Canadian Army Civil Affairs Section. When was it created? Well, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs was created basically in 1944, early 1944. Um, much of the Canadian Civil Affairs organization, though, comes out of a, a larger British or, or, let's say, British Imperial or British Commonwealth experience as well. But technically, the organization itself is the, the term civil affairs is sort of first applied to the branch in early 1944. But there is a long, long kind of history of administration, of occupied territories, of imperial administration that sort of feeds into civil affairs. But the actual specific Canadian branch is created in early 1944. Who signs up for this kind of service? I mean, do you, or do you sign up for it or are you assigned to it? Do you, I mean, do you, do you sign up as you would for the Navy or the infantry or how, how would you recruit? How would you be recruited for the first Canadian Army Civil Affairs section? Well, it's interesting because uh, First of all, most people didn't sign up for civil affairs specifically. What would happen is you would, uh, unfortunately, and as someone who's in my late 30s, uh, if you're in your 30s, uh, you're too old for combat by that point. You're too old to serve in combat, and and, and that's just a reality of war. You know, to, in, people in their 30s are too old for that for that part of it. But but a lot of these lifers, a lot of these professional soldiers in the Canadian military would then get sort of transferred into civil affairs. But at the same time, and this is what's I think what makes the branch so interesting is that you had lifers, but then you had civilians who were recruited in the military, just like anything, just like young, young men would volunteer, young men and women would volunteer. But these were older young men, so older men, sorry, who had, who had much more experience uh, in civilian life, you know, who, who were doctors, who were lawyers, who were bankers, who, you know, who were academics. And, and these people with sort of specific kind of skills and specific knowledge were, were recruited actively by civil affairs because these were the people they felt could do the best job of you know, helping and, and, and administering these civilian populations in these various regions of Europe. Was there special training for these people? Yeah, there was. Uh, they would go to England. Uh, you, they would do sort of a series of courses, uh, language courses. They would do history courses, which is nice as a historian to, to hear. Uh, and and, and they, Yes, it's essential. It's essential, exactly. <laughs> Even in war, history is essential. <laughs> right. And so these – and these, these, these uh, um, mostly men, all, all men in civil affairs would uh, be trained in whatever country they were going to be assigned to. They would be given sort of the rudimentary language issues, maybe cultural stuff. Um, and, and they would have to kind of study up on where they were going and the region they were going to be in. And so there was this sort of training. But more importantly, though, these civilians were – they had experience. A lot of these a lot of these officers already had life experience that was – they were picked specifically for that, to, 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 be, to, to be used and utilized in the various places that they were going in Europe. This section was led by a fellow called Basil Wedd, and I had not encountered him before. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, Wed Wed is a, a, a forgotten Canadian soldier for sure. Um, no, no one, no one really knows about him um, in, in terms of the literature, in terms of the scholarship that's come out. Uh, Wed is born in Toronto, so he's from Ontario. Um, he was a, a veteran of the First World War. He was a decorated soldier in the First World War. Served with the Canadians in the First World War. In the interwar period, he goes into civilian life like so many soldiers did. He works for the Massey Harris Company. I don't, and I don't. Many, many people might not know who the Massey Harris Company is, but it's a, one of Canada's first sort of multinational organizations. It's a pretty incredible uh, the agricultural equipment, things like that. So he's working in Europe as their representative uh, during the interwar period. So he's actually in Europe for for a number of years, uh, selling farm equipment, basically. 
And when the war breaks out, he is recruited back in and eventually finds himself appointed the head of First Canadian Army Civil Affairs. He is a, he is the top soldier for the Civil Affairs branch. He's literally at the headquarters with Criar throughout the entire war, throughout the entire Northwest campaign. He's a man who knows the European territory. He's a man who knows the military as a result of his First World War experience. And he's also a guy who can get things done. He's worked in the private sector. He knows how to connect A and B. And that would, I guess, that gives him all the qualifications necessary to run civilian affairs. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's basically the perfect, he's the perfect candidate for the job. Absolutely. And then what you just explained is, I think, would it really drives the point home for the listeners in the type of qualifications that civil affairs is looking for. These are not just combat soldiers they're looking for. These are people with a, a varied experience and ability to be a bit more adaptable, not just within the sort of the, the specific box that is the military, but to be able to think outside of it as well. There's another Canadian involved, and he's Lieutenant General Alex Edward Grasset of Toronto. Now, he reported to Eisenhower. What was Grasset's story? His, his, his uh, story is that he is... Um, he, he actually was born in England, but he grew up in Toronto, so he was raised in, in Canada, um, like so, so many people from Great Britain during that period. Um, and Grasset becomes the head of G5, and G5 is basically civil affairs. That's the term for the entire Allied Civil Affairs organization. So we're talking about everyone under Eisenhower. Every civil affairs branch under Eisenhower is G5. And here's Grasset, and he is appointed the, 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 the head of it all. So he, he's working directly with Eisenhower. Uh, in formulating civil affairs policy. I mean, it's pretty incredible. So WED would be reporting to Grasset? That's correct, yes. Grasset would be WED's superior. Wow, a Canadian reporting to a Canadian uh, who's reporting again to, to Eisenhower. Now, you spend a good part of your, or the first part of your book, looking at the experience of civilian affairs with the Italy campaign in 1943. What were the lessons learned in Italy? Well, uh, boy... How, how long do we have? Uh, <laughs> it, 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 there was a lot of lessons learned in, in Italy, Patrice. And to be honest, um, it, was a, it was a steep learning curve. Um, there, were, there were a number of things that at the time it wasn't civil affairs. It was called Allied Military Government or AMGOT. Um, and at, the, at that time, they were working through a number of major lessons. They, they, frank, frankly, they were basically trying to learn on the job. And, and that was the whole Italy experience is this kind of just sort of stumbling through every region, stumbling through every place and trying to sort of figure out how this works. Because the, one of the big issues, one of the big complications, Patrice, is that the, the civil affairs was sort of this newer branch. And, and it was very difficult for a lot of commanders, military commanders, to think of them as part of the military. And a lot of military commanders thought of them as sort of this separate branch, like a political, a civil political branch, and not actually part of the military hierarchy, which it was. It was it was meant to be part of the military hierarchy, and it was in the end. So in Italy, the big lesson was, how do we incorporate these civil affairs officers? How do we make them part of the chain of command? How do we have them at headquarters? How do we decide what resources they get versus what our you know armor gets and artillery gets, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the that was the big learning curve is, is how do we use these people now? You know, how, as as if any branch was created, this is sort of this new branch that's now going to be utilized in Italy and, and, and beyond. So it was it was a big learning curve and there was a number of like tons of lessons that they developed and they they built on and stuff like that. But Italy was a was a fascinating time for them as you know and I think the one of the best anecdotes frankly is the fact that when the Allies arrived in Sicily the civil affairs officers had to stow away on the ships that, that were delivering them to the beach. They weren't even on the manifest. So that, <laughs> that, that gives you a sense of how it started in Italy. And then by Northwest Europe, of course, as we talked about, 
they are arriving uh, with the ships. But the experience in Italy is instructive. We, we don't have a Canadian civilian affairs division at that point. It's really from the Italian experience that the decision makers in Ottawa realize that we, we are, are going to need this kind of a, a service to accompany the Canadian Army and uh, so that when we do the landings in 44 in France, uh, there will be the necessary men, because they're all men, um, who are at the ready to move behind the, uh, the front line and then do the work of restoring civilian affairs. Um, Again, reading your book, uh, civilian affairs really come into their own after the Normandy landings. Were there special challenges for them as the army moved up the French coast and into Belgium? You talk about Caen, for example, as being, well, we know it's, it was a horrific battle. Uh, the city is destroyed. What were the special challenges for CA, the civilian administrators, in a place called Caen? In France, yeah. Well, it was uh, you're at, like you like you rightly pointed out. It was a it was a horrific battle. The city was destroyed in the fighting. The Allied bombers primarily destroyed it. Um, they had tens of thousands of civilians who were homeless, who had no running water, who had no sewage, who were basically now refugees in their own refugees in their own city, refugees in their own country, refugees in their own province. Um, and, and, and now civil affairs had to go in and basically, you know, help them had, had to, had to provide that stuff. They had to, they had to figure out. So civil affairs officers went into con. They said, okay, what do we need? We need to get, you know, 30,000 civilians out of the city because the fighting is still going on, right? It's going on all the way into July, uh, all the way through July. And so they're pulling refugees out of there. They're feeding them. They're housing them. They're providing medical care for them. They're trying to reestablish law and order. And at the same time, all of this is going on. The civilians are angry. They're angry. This, this liberation came at a cost. We're talking thousands of dead civilians. We're talking about the ancient city of Khan destroyed, the city of William the Conqueror destroyed in the fighting. And, and, and yeah, this is, this is the cost of war. But for many of them, it was very frustrating. So you have a lot of uh, civil affairs officers, Canadian civil affairs officers, French Canadian civil affairs officers who are speaking and working with Normans, sort of uh, trying to mitigate some of this, not just physical damage, but psychological damage that occurred. It's 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 unimaginable. I mean, you've got everything, the most mundane issues like burying cadavers. Uh, you've got restoring water service. You've got you got to feed people, and then on top of that, and you you mentioned in your book, you have to deal with the French. <laughs> you've got to deal with you've got to deal with Charles de Gaulle. Yeah. Uh, you've got to deal with the resistance in France that does not take kindly, I can imagine, to the notion that their civilian affairs are going to be run by a bunch of Canadians. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was very <laughs> it was very complicated, Patrice. It was a uh, politically, it was quite complicated. One of the fascinating aspects of this whole political dynamic, though, is that the senior allied uh, military leaders, the senior allied politicians were very hesitant to recognize de Gaulle as the French political authority. They, they didn't want to be seen to be sort of selecting the next leader of the French. Meanwhile, on the ground, there's Gaullists everywhere. And these are the people that the civil affairs officers start working with. These guys come out of hiding to say, hey, I'm, I'm here. I can help this. I can help this. And so for civil affairs officers at the sharp end, Yes, they are saying, "Well, you you seem like the most capable person I can work with, so I'm going to work with you anyway." So there's this strange moment in the summer of '44 where De Gaulle is not being recognized as the leader of the Free French, uh, the like sort of the new political authority of this liberated France. Yet on the ground, 
that's what's happening. All his sort of subordinates are working with civil affairs to re, re sort of reignite, to sort of rebuild this free French uh, state. And I mean, local municipal management in France is a high art. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they really, you know, the maire, the maire, the mairie, uh, the, the French really do care about how things are run locally. And I guess, after, I mean, and, and not surprisingly, after five years of, of oh, four years of, of complete German domination, especially in a place like Caen, um, the the politics. I mean, you, ha you really have to appreciate the diplomacy that had to be exerted by guys like Wed from Toronto, uh, dealing with the French resistance and, and dealing with the the local mayors who want to you know who want to be restored in their jobs and who know how to run things. So we have France in '44, and then we follow your book and we wind up in the Netherlands. This is the this is the hunger winter for the Dutch. What was the Canadian role there? Well, the Canadian, I, you know, I argue in my book, and I, I think I make it pretty clear. Uh, the civil affairs effort by the Canadians in the Netherlands was their crowning achievement. I think it's one of the, one of the one of the great moments in the Canadian war story of the Second World War, to be perfectly honest. And I think it's what we and we do talk about it. You know, it is taught like this is still part of the narrative of today. It's not like no one knows about the the hunger winter and the, and the Dutch. But I think what my book really tries to hammer home is the the nuts and bolts of of how that worked, how the Canadians relieved the dutch so in the by by 1944-45 by the winter winter of 44-45 there was serious concerns about the lack of food in that country the germans have effectively stripped everything from that country food resources rubber coal you name it it's gone they've taken it all back and the german occupation authorities uh you know are 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 very content with letting the people of the netherlands starve and freeze and the canadians arrive uh in 44 and through the winter of 44, 45, they start getting all these reports that people are, people are dying or people are sick. And at first, it's, it's a bit of a challenge for them because for most of these, the leaders, just not just in the Canadian army, but in allied, you know, Eisenhower and, and everyone else, to them, the, the best thing to do for the Dutch is win the war as fast as possible. So for, for a lot of people, they're saying, look, let, let's just keep fighting. The minute we beat the Germans, that's the best for everyone. But the problem gets so severe Patrice, it gets so intense, and the reports start coming back, and you have the Dutch royal family writing to Churchill, writing to Roosevelt, saying, "Look, like this could this could be a humanitarian disaster of incredible proportions." And so, what ends up happening is Canadian civil affairs say, "Well, look, okay, we'll go, we'll go in and negotiate," and they actually negotiate with the Germans to create a relief effort. And the Canadians themselves operate a, a convoy relief effort called Operation Faust, and it was basically seven days of just trucks driving behind German lines, dropping off food. And then the Americans and the British operate um, airdrops, Operation Manna and Chowhound, respectively. And all of this is organized by civil affairs. All this food, all the all the numbers, the statistics, the the supplies, what's needed, how many pounds of this, how how, how many liters of that. That's all organized by Canadian civil affairs. It's all negotiated by Canadian civil affairs. So it's an incredible moment. And it just shows you by that point how well-tuned the formation had become. They, they, they were so good at their job by that point that they were able to effectively bring food to these starving people and negotiate with the German occupation authorities, which is obviously no easy task at the time. We know full well that the Dutch are, are remarkably welcoming when Canadians go back there for 
remembrance day ceremonies. And I think your your book really opened my eyes. It wasn't just a question of being liberated militarily, but also the efforts that happened after the army rolled through of, of looking after, of doing the best. I mean, it was still hard, uh, but doing their very best to make sure that the, the, the basic necessities of life were being looked after, or at least that there was some hope. Uh, for the Dutch uh, after the horrific experience of the German occupation. But then, then as you, again, I'm following your book, so then we wind up in Germany where the role of the Canadian Civilian Affairs um, Office is not simply to liberate people. Canada now becomes an occupying force, does it not? And how does that affect civilian affairs? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, so what, what the, the, on the first thing is the name alone changes. So the minute a civil affairs officer crosses into Germany, he is now a military government officer. So that, that alone is very fascinating, just the idea that you, literally your title changes. But here's the interesting thing, Patrice, and, and, and hopefully my book shows this a little bit. A lot of the jobs of civil affairs doesn't change. Food, safety, law, health, these things are still there. Now, obviously, the, the nuance of it has changed dramatically because, of course, this, like you said, we are an occupying force. These are the enemy. This is an enemy population. But the men of civil affairs who become military government are now suddenly tasked with uh, with things like providing food for with uh, with uh, uh, you know ensuring law and order is kept with denazifying the german state that's an incredibly new, incredible new task um, they encounter this a little bit in in northwest europe and italy but really in germany one of the major things they're doing is figuring out who was a nazi and not just who was a nazi because Frankly, at this point, a lot of people were Nazis. So it's who was a who was a diehard Nazi versus who was not, and it's a very, I I, I, do, I don't envy the job because what we're talking about is civil affairs officers having to say like, well, you jo you only joined the Nazi party last year, so you're not as Nazi as this other guy who's been a Nazi for 15 years, you know, and they have to make these evaluations basically on people's loyalty to the party in order to figure out a way to work with certain people. And ideally, what happens is they. They, uh, um, they they try to work with people who are not members of the Nazi party. So you do have people come out of hiding, people who have been sort of civilians for the party that that weren't sort of official Nazis or members of the Nazi party. But it's a, it's a very complicated task. Not to mention, you also have uh, displaced persons and refugees. You have these prisoners of war. You have the slave laborers. You know, from most of them from Eastern Europe who are now free. And the problem is, they want revenge. And this becomes a very dark chapter of this German story, as you have Canadian soldiers having to protect. German civilians from attacks by these former prisoners of war and former slave laborers. And it's a, and you can see in my book, some Canadians have a real big problem with it because to them, the Germans were the enemy, not, not the people they're sort of holding back. So it, it, it's a very complicated situation. The, I mean, again, the level of detail impressed me. At some point you mentioned in your book, was it the, the, the Polish first armored division that was part of the Canadian, that was attached to the Canadian army that made a request for 200 bras for the women that were being liberated by that were being liberated from concentration camps i mean this is the kind of level the ca office had to deal with they had to find 200 bras i know and and and, and i'm glad you brought that up because i think that anecdote and that type of detail drives home the, the wide range of things they were responsible for. And I, and I, and again, I, I mean, the only way to really get it across is for people to read the book, but I, I, I always stress this whenever I talk, you know, about this is these, these, these gentlemen were in charge of so many things that it, it probably boggles our mind actually, to be honest. I mean, to think of yourself or myself being, being responsible for this wide variety of requests 
and unusual circumstances, and then the nuances and the political realities and the diplomatic realities and the military realities of it all. So it's, it's extremely challenging, and I think that anecdote gives a little taste of that. There's a wonderful phrase in your book, and it goes like this, this battle was not fought with shells and bullets, but with supplies and knowledge. Can you give me another example of supplies and knowledge being applied by the CA? Yeah, well, well, so well, let's start with the supplies. Uh, you know, one of the key things that civil affairs officers had to do everywhere they went is get food. They had to get food for people, um, especially you know the Netherlands was an example, but even in, in Normandy too, where these these you know infrastructure was destroyed, um, fields were ravaged, people were starving, people were hungry, and so civil affairs officers had to go and they had to go into a town or or a village. And they would say, "What do we need? Oh, we need, we need, we need food." And they would send a, send a call back. They'd send a request back, and down the chain of down the logistics chain would come food for people. So that was one way in which supplies worked. Knowledge was was e even more important because the, the the thing about knowledge is everywhere civil affairs officers went, they their first job was to say, "What what do people need right now?" So you had to you had to learn. We don't have any police, or or we have no running water, or our sewage systems are destroyed, or we have no fire you know fire services. We have no emergency services. Whatever it was, and you would have a civil affairs officer who would go into a village. He'd sit down, literally find a desk or an office, and he would drum up a report. They draw up a report that says here's what people need. So this type of knowledge was so vital because the quicker you understood what people needed, the quicker you could help them, the quicker you could alleviate any possible pressing issues that might affect the conduct of military operations in those areas. They really are unsung heroes, aren't they? They truly are. Uh, absolutely. That brings me to my classic Champlain Society question. Um, what new materials did you use to write this very innovative book? Well, I was very, I was very fortunate, Patrice. I, uh, civil Affairs has not been written about in the Canadian historiography. So I, I not to not to be a braggart, but I, this is the first book on civil affairs in, in Canadian military history. This is your moment to brag. <laughs> this is my moment to brag. Thank you, thank you, Patrice. I appreciate that. Um, and I was very fortunate because when I was doing my PhD, I, I did my PhD at University of New Brunswick under uh, the great Mark Milner, and Mark was the one who I, I originally I wanted to do urban combat. I wanted to study urban combat tactics, and then Mark said, "Well, listen, like there's there's this kind of branch that no one's talked about called civil affairs, and I've never heard of it, as most people haven't heard of it." And I went to the archives, and lo and behold, the civil affairs papers, the primary sources were incredibly bountiful. It was first Canadian army civil affairs, second Canadian Corps civil affairs documents. We're talking detachment documents, the, the, just a wealth of wealth of knowledge that had really never been picked through. So I had all of this. And then I went to London and I went through the National Archives in Kew and there was civil affairs stuff as well. Now the British had picked through that already, but certainly not in the Canadian sense. So I was, I was very fortunate. I, I, I was lucky enough to have an innovative topic but also to have this wealth of primary source doc, you know, documentation that had not really been used. Is there more work to do in this area, David? Oh, my gosh. There's so much more work to do. You know, in, 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 the, in Britain and, and the United States, they wrote official histories of their civil affairs branches. This is, this, my book is not an official history. Let me make that very clear. My, my book is just the, the opening of the door. There is so much to be done. Uh, the whole German story needs to be – it needs an own book in itself. You know, And if you read that chapter, you could see just how – complicated and violent and, and, and nuanced that period was. And that, that in, in and of itself should be an entire book too. So there's, there's so much more work to be done. There's a, there's more work to be done too on, on women and their role in civil affairs. And that's one thing I wish I had spent more time on in my book. I, I you know, as, as a writer, we, we can only write what we, we were writing, but I know looking back, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more stories to be told. Let's put it that way. 
As we observe Remembrance Day, how do you think we should include your findings in our memory? Well, I, to be honest, I think that the story of Canada's Second World War was always the story of civil affairs. And I don't mean to sound sort of cheeky or, or cliched about it, but the, the top, we, we already, we knew, you, you knew and I knew, we all knew about the, the Dutch and the starvation. We just didn't know the nuts and bolts. We didn't actually know the people that were really responsible for making that work. And so when we talk about the liberation of France and Belgium and the Netherlands, we are talking about civil affairs. Now what I hope is that with my book, I hope that people understand a little bit more about that sharp end point. Who is actually talking with these civilians? Who is actually physically giving them food? Who is organizing the medical supplies and all of these things? You know? And so I, I hope at least my book just adds to that understanding that it was a lot more complicated. It's, it wasn't as neat and tidy as we liberate and move on. It was much more complicated and much more challenging. And I would argue that one of the lasting, uh, you know, cons or legacies of the war, and you, you mentioned this already, the Dutch and their, their relationship with the Canadians, that that relationship has been forged in 1944, 1945. And frankly, that relationship was forged because of the work of civil affairs officers. So I just hope that when people remember, when people think about Remembrance Day, when people think about the Canadian War experience, I just hope this book adds a little bit more of that nuance, a little bit more of who are these unsung heroes, as you said, who are doing the work on the ground, who are making this Canadian story uh, what, what we know it today. Well, as a student of public administration, I certainly uh, discovered many, many great things in your book. I think it really sheds new light on the Canadian experience in the Second World War, David, and I thank you very much for writing the book and for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. That was David A. Boris, and his new book is Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe, published by McGill Queen's University Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company, History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. As a quick way for you, the listener, to support this podcast, please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the fourth wave of the COVID pandemic on October 25th, 2021 by our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.